Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Everyone, uh, it is time again for the three questions with Andy Richter. I am, as always, Andy Richter, and I am talking today to the very, very funny, uh, talented. He's a newcomer on the scene, <laughs> <laughs> but you've—I'm sure you've seen some of his hilarious work. Uh, Caleb Heron, how are you? And it's Heron, right? Uh, Heron, yeah. Heron, okay, Heron. Uh, they, there shouldn't be an A in there if it's Heron. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And however yeah, you yeah, say yeah. it's fine with me. I don't care. All right. All right, Caleb. Um, <laughs> let's get into it. Uh, now you, uh, you are you and I have some similars. Uh, uh, you uh, were both Midwestern. We both were I.O. people. Yeah, uh, yeah. And um, and now you are. What are you? You're working on like the the Big Mouth uh, spinoff, right? Yeah, we did. Um, we did season one of that last fall, and then. We're gearing up for uh, for season two of it now, but the, oh, fir- nice. the first season will come out this spring, and I think people are really going to like it. Have you have you been in a writer's room, or has it all been from home? Uh, it has all been from home. I'm I moved. I was living in Chicago. Um, I lived in Chicago for three years after college, and I got that job offer after I'd already decided to move to LA during the pandemic, which I don't still really understand why I did that. Yeah. Um, and then we did the room all on Zoom. It was my first writer's room, and it was all on Zoom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Weird. Um. Was was it easy to find an apartment like pandemic wise? Like I, I don't know. I feel like no. Oh really? <laughs> no, was, well, I guess because nobody's moving. Yeah, and we didn't want to. Um, we didn't want to make a trip out because most people who move from Chicago to LA, at least currently or the last couple of years, the way that I know it is that people come out for like um, a week about a month before they want to actually move out and they'll find a place, sign for it, do all that yeah. stuff, go back get all their shit. Well, we didn't want to make multiple trips because it was the height of COVID. So we right, right. signed for a place over FaceTime and it was really difficult to get someone to do that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and it's probably haunted or something. There's probably, you know, it was haunted. We lived yeah. there. Yeah. We moved, we moved, uh, we moved to a two bedroom apartment in North Hollywood. Cause I didn't have a job. So I really, I was like, if I get that writer's job I interviewed for, that'd be dope. But I didn't have a job. So I was like driving for Uber Eats was the plan. Yeah. And then um, got that job. And then in December, uh, after we lived there for like six months, we moved to a, a new place that we liked better. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I mean, that is one thing about LA is there's lots of like flexible housing, much more so than a lot of other places, you know? Yeah. Month to month leases yeah, and sublets yeah. and all kinds of stuff. It's very, it's very um, yeah. different. You bet. You benefit from the 
transient, sad, depressing <laughs> nature of this town. <laughs> there's lots of options because there's lots of people disappearing all the time. <laughs> uh, now, you're from Missouri, right? Yes, I am. Uh, rural? Yeah, very. Yeah. What's the name of the town? I'm from a town called, mm, I'm from Northwest, uh, North, uh, Northwest Missouri. Uh, the town I grew up most in, we moved a lot. It's called Chillicothe. Uh-huh. And it is, um, now a lot of people don't know this, but it's the home of sliced bread. <gasps> no one ever fucking put a knife to bread before. Uh, is that listen, really saying that? What happened was people, people, hey, I'm Andy, so look. tired of eating an entire loaf at one sitting. Andy, 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 look, people were, they might have been, they might have been making a loaf of bread and cutting it with a knife, oh, but they oh, okay. weren't systematically buying it sliced by a machine at the store until my town came along. Oh, wow. Yeah. So. That's great. It's very, there's like murals of bread around town. It's hilarious. I mean, it really is the, the corniest, like most Midwestern. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's just goofy. That's, that's hilarious. It's a, a gluten intolerance nightmare town. It's everywhere. <laughs> taunting people. You're gluten free. Don't go. <laughs> now, uh, you uh, is it just two of you? It was two siblings? You had you and... I had, uh, yeah, I grew up with my brother, um, yeah. and then it kind of had, uh, two sisters. Uh, my mom was with, a, um, engaged to a guy for a while who we lived with, who had two older daughters that they, we became very close, but we're not blood related. Oh, I see. And yes. do you keep up with them still or keep up with them? Yeah. So oh, our parents, nice. when our parents broke up, we were kind of like, we like each other. So we still talk yeah. all the time and I consider them my sisters, but it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated story. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Um, so what kind of kid were you? I mean, it, it, and it was this, your, your dad was not in the picture. Yeah. Is that true? Is that my dad? Not around so much. I mean, my dad, I think <laughs> when I think about my dad, I go after lots of therapy, I, I feel, you know, not much anger towards him. I just think he probably shouldn't have been a parent. Like, I think that yeah. probably is the, the tea on that. Um, but yeah, he wasn't, I mean, I had to go see him on weekends, but I hated it. And I don't know that he liked it very much either. Um, but he, he lived in kind of the same area all the time. Like we moved and he moved, but we were always kind of around. So I would see him like most weekends. Um, oh, okay. But mostly, mostly with my mom who yeah, um, yeah. raised me. Okay. And, um, what, I mean, I imagine that was tough, you know, in a small town. I mean, is there, is there a support structure? Is there family to help or? Yeah, I, both sides of my family are very, I would say dysfunctional on both sides, uh, to, to a maximum degree. Like <laughs> I think both, <laughs> both sides of my family are, uh, extremely fucked up in different ways. Um, and, but I got really lucky. I played, I played sports growing up and, um, a lot of the guys who are my coaches would like take me to and from practice. And, um, you know, I look back and I'm like, Oh, it, you know, they definitely spent extra time with me because I was the kid who didn't really have a dad around. <laughs> like, I, see, I, see. Like, I was like, these guys just love my energy. You know what I mean? But, <laughs> <laughs> and then you look back and you realize it was all pity. Yeah. You look back and it's like, Oh no, they felt like a responsibility to the community. That's disgusting. <laughs> you are, you are what took a village. Basically, I, it, exactly. Yeah. The village was really like we. This one's the one we got to rally around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean everyone. I, I, I had a lot of uh, great coaches and teachers and stuff growing up, and also my brother. My old, my brother's older than me, and he was a real like. My brother was just a perennial mess, like constantly like, getting in trouble, doing shit he knew he shouldn't be doing, and uh, you know, all the teachers hated him because he was like a problem kid. So I, every year, would like go into class and be like, and I'm 
I'm not like my brother. Please, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, begging, yeah, yeah. you know, begging for people to like me. Um, so it was, yeah, was it, was he, a, it was a strange time. Was he that kid? Like, was he the kid? Because I know in our town there were like a couple of different, and it was all boys. Obviously, you know, there were a couple yeah. of boys that you would invoke their name, and it was like he's bad. Terror. Where are you from, Andy? Yorkville, Illinois. Yorkville, Illinois. Thank you so much. It's How like, far is that from Chicago? It's about. 60 miles west but you know when they in in as when i was growing up it might as well have been 200 miles you know like just in terms of the white fear of the city yeah and and actually do it you know it would be bears games cubs games and maybe a museum thrown in every couple of three years but beyond that the city was terrifying you know it was just you know it, it 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 didn't even matter that it was it was less than an hour away or an hour away. It's crazy how much those things like I, I grew up like an hour and a half north of Kansas City, which is not a, a, a huge city, not dangerous, really. And it's crazy how much growing up adults saying things like, you know, they would talk about especially obviously very racist. Like they would talk about neighborhoods where obviously a lot of uh, black people or people who were not white lived. And they would say things like, Oh, well, if you ever, if you ever find yourself lost down there, like lock your car doors, like roll your windows up. And then you, you grow up, you, I lived in Kinsey for a little bit. I worked in neighborhoods like that. And then you go, Oh, you guys are fucking insane. This yeah. is like, it's just a boogeyman. It's all stuff you yeah. invented. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, my ex-wife uh, is what, most of her family is in Kansas city. And we went to, I think it was a wedding that we went to there. And we asked like for, it was a particular barbecue restaurant and somebody directed us. And I I think it was my ex-wife's aunt or someone said that neighborhood is rough. Be careful. Like, Oh no, you just like be, it was like, Oh, you mean it's a a quiet African-American neighborhood? Like, yes. That's exactly what it was. Like there was no palpable threat whatsoever. It was just, it was just the fear of people, you know? It's such a, I think in, I, I mean, college was obviously such a huge um, awakening for me on so many things, but one of them was, I remember very vividly a college professor, I think it was a poli sci class, um, telling us, or, or, or instructing us to read this, um, uh, what is it called? Like a study, this research that um, statistically the people in the United States who are the most afraid of crime are the people who are least likely to be affected by it. Yeah, yeah. The the anxiety index about um, crime that exists in rural white communities where it hardly ever happens because everything's so spread out and right. um, the kind of crimes that happen there are more individual like drug use and things, domestic violence. Um, but it, it's insane the way that people work themselves into a frenzy over like, I mean, even when I said I was moving to Chicago, like, you know, a bunch of like my friend's dads being like, be careful up there. And it's like, what are you, you're never yeah, yeah. like, why are you so afraid of it? You're never going to even go. I know. I know. <laughs> it's made I know. up. I know. Anyway. Well, uh, so you had your brother at least to kind of like, uh, do you think he was like a negative example though? Like, do you think that like in many ways that it affected you to sort of be more of a good boy because he was a bad boy or is that just a natural difference? Um, I think there we have different dads. So I think there's a genetic thing um, going on to some extent. Um, mm. His dad is a very particular type of person and he has a lot of the same traits as him. My dad is, um, you know, uh, antisocial, um, has a lot of mental health issues, but is also very intelligent. Like the, I think there's, there are things about each of our dads that we really 
latch on to. Mm-hmm. Um, mental health issues are different, but present on both sides. But I think, yeah, 100%. The My brother being like a massive monumental sort of <laughs> constant fuck up um, definitely encouraged me to stay in the closet longer. Definitely uh, encouraged me to get good grades, be involved in everything in school, try to get all the teachers to like me. I mean, I just wanted... My mom was raising the two of us by herself and working three jobs and putting herself through school. And so my mom is a literal superhero. And I just saw she just didn't even have the bandwidth to deal with his shit. So then I, you know, as a kid was definitely like, I cannot do anything wrong. Like I can't add to this. And I think there are parts of that that I'm very grateful for because I think I turned out to be um, the kind of person that I would like to be. I mean, I'm changing all the time like everybody, but I'm pretty happy with my life. But I think also there are things I look back on and go, Oh, I, I, you know, the, the fear of failure, the fear of, um, people not liking you of, um, not feeling like you can make a single mistake because then you're, you're ruining people's lives. Like it's, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a very interesting, um, double-edged sword. Yeah. Well, and because I, th- I do think too, what often happens is kids that sort of live under a kind of benign neglect you know like like everybody's just too busy you know i mean like sorry hon but you you're gonna have to figure it out for yourself like that that's can be very hurtful in some ways but it can also like there's like tremendous amount of self-sufficiency that that happens oh yeah kids like that like where you learn to take care of yourself and you learn how to get shit done because there's no one else to do it for you and i think that that's you know i don't know you know, it, it it galvanizes you in a certain way and probably, you know. Yeah, I think this it's a pretty present uh, joke on the Internet. It, this is not a, an original thing to say, but there is this like kind of widespread joke about um, so like an, an adult telling a kid you have such an old soul and saying thank you. It's from my trauma. But it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah it's like I've always been. um more comfortable talking to adults when I was a kid. I've always mm-hmm. felt a little bit older than the people who are my actual age. And it's because. Yeah. It's, and my mom was doing, my mom did a great job and paid a ton of attention to me, but I just did have to do a lot of shit on my own. I was, I was kind of without two parents in the household. It was like, yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of things I had to do. You had to learn to cook early, get yourself to school, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. When I was young, um, I mean, not to go into too much detail, but like my mom started, uh, leaning on me for counsel at like 13 or 14. Yeah. And she's like, she's like, you always gave such good advice. You were so, what she said, she would say things like, I stopped arguing with you when you were about 11 because you always won. And, and (laughs) and then I started asking you your opinion on stuff, which is like, at the time I felt really proud. Like, you know, my mom looks to me and I'm real grown (laughs) up and I make good choices and not realizing like, you shouldn't do this, mom. This is like, this is too much. This is not, you know. You this know is an, inver- an inversion of a paradigm. Um, yeah, you know stuff you know. that you shouldn't know. You know yeah. about like, like I knew, I knew that we had money issues at a very yeah. young age, and like shit that like that's stressful. That's a, oh. it, it creates a kind of stress you can't really handle as a kid. I, as a child, learned. I got my sixth sense about a bill collectors calling. Yeah, I, they would say, you know, they'd ask if Glenda was there, and I'd be standing right next to her. And I'd say, no, I'm sorry, she's not. This is her son. And, you know, and then I'd hang up. My mom go, bill collector. I say, yeah. Yeah. Which is like, I mean, I I got kids and I just can't. I I, I mean, I don't blame my mom in some ways because it's just it's it's like you're in life. But there's just I just don't think I would allow my kids to sort of 
<laughs> you know, fend off the bill yeah, collectors. Fend off, off bill the collectors. Stick. Right, right. Or know, <laughs> know that, you know, about credit scores and shit, you know. Um, so, well, did you, as a, as a gay kid, like, when did you kind of start to really feel like, you know, you knew that this was going on with you? God, I, I think I... I, I definitely remember like third and fourth grade, there was some very like, it, you know, everything was started to get so gendered around then. That's when like the, the girls went for cheerleading and the boys went for football. The, you yeah. know, everything started to home and, and shop. Yeah. Home and sh- yeah. Everything started yeah. to split up around then. And I, I remember feeling like, um, I don't really like there, there were, there were little things around then too. Like at Thanksgiving, all of the guys would like be, you know, watching like not even and the guys in my family are not even huge like sports guys but just because they would be watching like i don't know a fucking car show on tv or the football game or whatever right right and i was absolutely in the kitchen trying to be like what are the women talking about you yeah, know yeah and so there was this thing for a while where at first i was like i you you feel different but you don't know what it is you don't really know what gay is you don't really know anything about sex um i hope i certainly didn't and then um you're like, oh, it's different. It's different. But then when you do learn what gay is for a while, I, um, because of church and because of how much I loved women and being around women, I was like, oh, I'm not gay. I just, um, I just have to fight through this because if I was gay, I wouldn't love being around women so much. Mm. (laughs) Like I have all this, (laughs) I have all this reverence for women. It must be sexual. Right. Right. Um, and so, yeah. And then, uh, you know, middle school was very much about like praying about it and trying to be normal and wanting to, you know, um, not go through that just because it felt like such a hassle. And also I didn't, you know, I didn't think my family would be weird about it. Honestly, I always felt like my family would probably be pretty cool with me coming out. Yeah. Um, I was very lucky in that way, but I, the big fear for me was that I wouldn't, I've always had, um, guy friends. I've always had like male friends that are important to me. And I felt like, um, just because of the kind of jokes and stuff we would make that if I was actually gay, that I wouldn't have guy friends anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my big thing. It wasn't so much about the family as like, I want to continue to have the kinds of friendships I have and uh, make the kind of jokes and things that I make. Um, which by the way, my, I've never made more homophobic jokes than when I came out like, uh, and still yeah. currently I make more homophobic yeah, yeah, jokes yeah. now than I did when I was in the closet. <laughs> right. Right. But yeah, just, just, you know, wanting to have, uh, wanting to be able to maintain your friendships and not have, um, anything that separates you from your friends. You want to be just like your friends. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and and there is, uh, well, especially out there, we talked, we were talking about it a little bit before we started recording because we were talking, because my son is gay and he and his boyfriend had been together since they were 16. Mm. And we were talking about how, (laughs) (laughs) how that's not, that's not the norm, really. Oh, God. Are you kidding? Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, because my son came out when he was 11 and I, I've even, you know, I mean, I've had people that were guests on this show who are gay, who are like, you know, hearing about how easy it was for your son to come out uh, is a little stressful for some. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I, I mean, I guess I could have been an asshole about it, but I, you know. I, <laughs> you should have been. Yeah. yeah. And you still no, have time, son, by the way. Look, son, I'm in show business. I can't have a queer around here. <laughs> Um, no, I, I, it doesn't stress me out really. I mean, I think that I find a very, I mean, I don't know, sincerity, sincerity about most things, uh, makes me a little uncomfortable sometimes, Yes, yes. but I think 
I think the people who get sincerely jealous of uh, young queer kids and actually have to process like, oh, I'm so intensely, deeply jealous of that. I mean, I it's very funny to me that I had the experience that I did of being so scared of coming out and so badly wanting to be normal. And now there are kids like seven year old drag queens. And I'm like, yeah. what the fuck has happened? I, I'm happy for them and I don't uh, harbor much actual jealousy about it. It's just very funny to me. Yeah. And it's very quick. It's happened very yeah. fast. You know, like when you consider that Ellen DeGeneres coming out as gay on a sitcom was a world ender. And that was five minutes ago, you know, like, and, and now she, you know, well, I mean, it, it, things have changed, but you know, she was America's sweetheart for a while there. And, yeah. you know, well, and uh, she, she had a, you know, it's so, it's so funny the way that people, the, the, the shit with her, uh, you know, quote unquote cancellation and people trying to erase all the things that she did. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have to be that way. We can have many no. things be true at once. She is a fucking pioneer. We, yeah. Every single queer person owes Ellen DeGeneres a massive amount of gratitude. And also Ellen DeGeneres has to reckon with the fact that she presided over a workplace that was racist and fucked up and not cool. Like there are a lot of things that can be true at once, but the queer community owes Ellen DeGeneres yeah. a lot. Absolutely. And, and it also just, I mean, the fact is most heroes and pioneers and you know norm breakers they're a little fucked up like there's <laughs> like like i don't know whether it's the burden of being that or uh, or just like you know a lot of really special heroic people are they're, they're too much they're too much to be one you know like in real life to be a real person and it's one thing for them to be a symbol and to you know do amazing things but that cost that costs a lot of like psychic energy and it has a cost that weighs on people that probably makes them a little fucked up, you know? And so it's like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, I, you know, well, and and also you can't, no one can, this is in no way excusing. I don't, I don't really actually know the full, the full breadth of what went on at Ellen or what people were upset about. I trust that. Oh, I do. Oh, I do. No, no I don't really, but I mean, um, I know, I know a fair amount, but. Well, I also, I, what I do know is that <laughs> people conflate a lot of things. Like people, when people are trying so hard to go after somebody, they, you know, I saw people sharing at some point, like Ellen's a monster. She makes people chew gum before they go in her office. Cause she doesn't like bad breath. And I'm like, ultimately, if you make, you know, $200,000 a year, uh, working as a producer on a TV show and someone asks you to chew a piece of gum, just put the fucking gum in your mouth and shit. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? It's like, who I don't, but they conflate that kind of thing. That's so petty and stupid with actually important and big things like presiding over a workplace that is problematic. And, and it all becomes this big jumbled mess of like very unclear, very unfocused criticisms on somebody who is probably more nuanced and complicated than we're allowing for. Mm -hmm. And then it just lets, so then everybody just ends up on the side they were going to end up on anyway. The you yes. know, yeah. left wing, super leftist type people are going to be like, uh, you know, this bitch should never work again. And then super right, right wing people are going to, um, you know, this bitch should never work again, but it's fucked up that people care that she was racist. You know, <laughs> It's I, like, yeah, well, I mean, the racism is, is you know, racist, sexist, you know, like uh, the, uh, the culture, you know, like the sort of culture of sexual harassment there was pretty bad apparently. Um, mm. But also too, it's like the, the fact that she's kind of, you know, I think like that people were really surprised because she had this sort of 
image of being, you know, about fun and love and caring and and kindness. And she's kind of a a distant person, you know, and like is like has a distance to her. And there's an A, she's a stand-up comedian. Get to know a few stand-ups. They're all fucking weirdos. They're all yeah. like who can only exist on stage. I mean, I I have known so many stand-ups throughout my life who and there's a it's a very specific brand of stand-up comedian who I see them once and it's my friend that I know and love and that we have fun together. And then I'll see him a week later and it's that person I kind of know a little bit. Yeah. And it's the exact same person, just depending on their weird fucked up moods, you know? And I say, this is someone with weird fucked up moods. Um, I I also think a lot about like um, how much you can live up to like, like, I don't even, I, you know, I don't like talking about myself as somebody who has a public persona, but I, there are strangers on the internet who feel like they know me yeah. and they will message me a lot of times and be like, I'm in LA. Can we please hang out? I want to be your friend. And I, it really, it used to, I used to want to respond and be like, yeah, that'd be so fun. Cause I want to meet new people. And I think that'd be a fun thing to do. Just go out with some stranger, but I don't do it. Cause I'm like, I'll never live up to whatever you think for good or for bad one way mm-hmm. or another, when you have a parasocial relationship with somebody, um, and obviously Ellen is on a much different, bigger, wilder scale, but anytime you have a parasocial relationship with somebody that you only know through media or the internet or their stage persona or whatever, you're not, you do not, you do not have a realistic understanding of what it mm-hmm. is like to spend time with that human being. No, at all. No, you can't. And also, and I mean, and there's a whole series of thought about when you're a public person and contacting People, you know, like fans that want to get in touch with you. There is there's a whole th- uh, school of thought that's like never respond to anything. Like yeah. That's your safest bet. Yeah, that's you know, they'll because somebody can send you something and that, and it, if you if you don't respond, they can think, well, you know, it got lost in the they shuffle. Yeah. They didn't see it. Yeah. Um, whereas if you do respond and there's some because there's crazy people, you know, that. Yeah. That don't exist in a in a regular world. And I, you know, and to bring it back to Ellen, we don't have any idea about the level of serious threats that were made to her and and her partner in Porsche. I worked with Porsche on arrested development and um we were doing a, a night shoot. It's three o'clock in the morning, and I just kept there was this like really handsome guy in a suit who was dressed like an agent. And I was like, who is that guy? And why is he around? And then he was standing next to her and I saw that he was uh, armed Mm. and I was like, oh shit, that's Porsche's security. And like, and he's not there for, for no reason, you know, like, like you don't have a, you don't have a a, a bodyguard with you just for fun. Right. Just because you have a good time. Yeah. Somebody, there's a reason that guy has to be with her around the clock. And that's, that's when you see that, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Who can say how fucking weird that would make you, how scared that would make you, how distant that would make you, you know? And how, yeah, just how detached from reality. Like I, you know, I have uh, in the last, like, uh, my career has been very different in the last year and a half than it was when I was in Chicago doing shows for five people. Um, And I've met a lot of famous people and uh, it is very new to me. And the thing I've been so surprised by is just how out of touch a lot of famous people are. Oh, 
They're so rich. They're so rich. They're so famous. They don't know anything. And they're, I feel like a, I feel like a, it's a party trick to talk about my life to them because I'm, you know, from just what we're talking about stuff about being from the Midwest, having a normal life. And, you know, I rich and famous people are very, um, taken by normalcy. Yeah. It's very interesting. It has been very, uh, surprising to me because I generally meet uh, you know, a rich or famous person. And I go, Oh, okay. That, I, I like something that you made or whatever. It's nice. To right. Do. But it, it is this, uh, very insane thing to have a conversation with someone and then be in the middle of it and realize, Oh, this person hasn't bought their own groceries in yeah. 20 years or you know, they can't. Yeah, exactly. Can't. Exactly. Yes, yes. Yes. Look around. You can find cars like these on auto trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Can't you tell my loves are growing? Now, were you funny in school? Like, were you the funny guy? Were you like, you know? I always, I mean, I think I, I was always goofing off and, and laughing with my friends. We thought we were all funny. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to be a lawyer. That was my big thing. I wanted to be a lawyer very badly. Um, what so kind was, of lawyer? Did you have a particular kind? Oh, I wanted to be a constitutional. I was, you know, I looked, I looked up to like Thurgood Marshall. I was like, uh-huh. I want to be like a, I want to be like a, like a big American hero guy, a jurist. Who like, yeah, who does yeah. who does the right thing, and you know, um, yeah, I wanted to be a lawyer really bad. So I was very serious about school and activities and being involved. But I was when I look back, I'm like, oh, it was all a performance. You wanted to be in student council because you liked talking at the meetings and having everyone's attention. It's like mm-hmm. that wasn't about loving the process of student government. <laughs> you yeah, know. Uh, yeah, but I bet you 90% of the, pe- you know, that's 90% of it for most people. I bet Thurgood Marshall really loved hearing himself talk. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. it's show business for everybody. It, you know, like at a certain point, there's those kind of jobs. It's like being a minister. That's show business. It's just like, it's a very particular kind of show business. Like you're, I'm going to do shows. They just happen to be on Sunday mornings and they're about being nice to each other. Yeah, you you have a very dramaturgical view of the world. The, uh, yeah. well, the world is a stage. We're all performing. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so so you went to college close by. You stayed into in state. Yes, I went to. I I really wanted to go. The story of my life, really, uh, if I had to boil it down, is um, next. I'm going to move to New York. That's the that's the quote I would use to sum up my life. Um, in high school, I really wanted to go to New York. I wanted to go and be. I wasn't out yet. I didn't come out until after my freshman year of college. But I wanted to go and, and live in New York and thought I would come out there. And um, I applied to some schools there in Philly and um, really wanted to go to like a city on the East Coast. And 
um, didn't, my family does not have money. So yeah. I got a good scholarship to go to Missouri state, um, a leadership scholarship, whatever that means. And <laughs> I went, I saw, so I was like, okay, I'm going to stay. And I also, I didn't quite have the, I think I was like uh, a half a point under the, God, this is so fucking little lame of me, but I had like, I didn't technically qualify for the honors college at Missouri state. So I, and there was no petition process. So I wrote a letter to the director of the honors college being like, I am serious. <laughs> I am serious about my education and I deserve to be in the honors college. And here's why. And they let me into the honors college. So I was like, okay, they loved my letter. I can, I got the scholarship. So I'm going to go there. And I went to Missouri state, um, studied sociopolitical communication. Pre, I was doing like pre-law stuff and I loved it. I really had such a blast. Yeah. I loved it there. I joined a fraternity, which is hilarious. I was in a fraternity all four years Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Cause I was like, I want to go to, you know, you gotta, this is, this is how people get into law school. You got to know people, you got to make connections. Yeah. And I kind of, I rushed a little bit as a joke at first. I was like, wouldn't it be funny if I, and then I met these guys, um, who were like actually pretty cool. And I actually had a good time with them. Um, and then I decided to join and it was a decent experience. There was a lot of shit, uh, throughout that particular, like the last year and a half of college, I pretty much was like, I'm not coming to meetings. You're not going to find me. And let's yeah, just yeah. ride this out. Like I'm done with this, but that was yeah. what everyone did. You know what I mean? I did. I did that. I, I mean, I transferred, I went to university of Illinois for the first two years. And then I went to Columbia college in Chicago for film school. Mm. And I, my freshman year, a bunch of guys, I was friends with the guys in my dorm and we all rushed the same fraternity. So we, we, when we came back our sophomore year, that's when we did our, you know, pledge week and all that stuff. Right. So it was sort of, I only really had one year and I never lived in the house, but I shortly after I became an active member, I realized this is not for me no. anyway. I'm going to, and I'm moving on. So I stopped, I did the same thing. I stopped coming to meeting. I just would show up for parties and there would be like, cause there was a, definitely a divide between the guys that were fun and the guys that were kind of dicks. Yeah. And, oh, you know, yeah. and w one of the dick guys would come up to me and be like, you're behind in your fees. You shouldn't be here at the party. And I was like, well, I guess you could throw me out. You know, if like, you want to do if that, you want to do that. Or you could just let me have a couple more cups of old style from the keg. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, let me, let me suck up another 26 cents of beer. Um, but yeah, but it was, it, it, and, and when you're young too, I think coming from a small town, you think, how am I going to have a social life? I don't know how to do that. Oh, here's this place that seems to be all about like, you know, where you can have a pass, absolutely passive social life. Yeah. And I didn't do theater in high school or anything. I never performed. I was never in choir or uh, plays or any of that stuff. So my social life in high school was around like student organizations and uh -huh. The fraternity and sorority life is ex those are extremely strong and like vibrant student yep. organizations, and so meetings yeah, and committees, meetings and, and parties, projects. and, committees and yeah. all kinds of you know. So the soft my sophomore and junior year, um, I was very involved. I was like the pledge educator. I lived in the house. I did all the stuff, um, and yeah, I just tried to make it my thing. Like there were definitely guys that were like you know, you know, breaking hotel doors off at formal and snorting Adderall off of it and doing shit like that. And then I would show up at meeting and be like, guys, we really need to get our grades up. It's embarrassing, you know? And <laughs> there were definitely a bunch of guys in the chapter who were like this fucking loser, but I'm like, yeah, it takes yeah. a balance, I guess, you know, like yeah. you have to have the guys that throw the great parties and you have to have the guy who yells at everybody about community service sure, hours. Yeah. Who makes sure the heat stays on. Yeah. So, yeah. 
that was that i i but was it hard course, to be out in in a in a, in a fraternity no i got very lucky the guys yeah I, there were a couple guys who I know had a problem with it and probably uh, still have a problem with it. They weren't my friends. We just happened to be in the same organization. Um, almost nobody cared. Um, yeah. Even a lot of the guys, I will say too, one of the, if there is a rewarding um, lesson or feeling that I take away from all of it, I think fraternities and sororities should probably be banned. Um, I think they're <laughs> bad organizations. I think they encourage a lot of bad behavior. Yeah. Um, particularly fraternities. But my experience was that I came in with a bunch of guys who were just fucking shitheads. They were like, they were just, they would say bad and dumb shit. They would say homophobic things. They would, they were just fucked up uh, 18 year old guys who were trying so hard to impress people and pretend that they didn't care. And it, I watched a lot of those guys um, over four years grow into like very cool, good dudes who Mm. didn't say faggot anymore and didn't, um, you know, did have, did have an understanding of like what it means to be um, a feminist or a decent human being, or uh, there was a lot of growth. And then of course there was also a lot of regression, but honestly, most of the guys who came in shitheads and left shitheads uh, either got kicked out, flunked, or uh, for some other reason, didn't, didn't make it like more than a year. You know what I mean? Right. Right. So it was interesting. I love a lot of those guys still. um, And the ones I don't, didn't talk to then don't talk to now, but I, Basically, in my actual social life, fell in, of course, with a bunch of the theater kids and improv kids, and yeah, yeah, started doing improv like my sophomore year because um, <laughs> I got massively depressed and was like, I don't want to be a fucking lawyer. What am I doing? Um, oh, really? So, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, it was because I went into college. I went in like, <laughs> I mean, it's so I just such a cornball. I went in and I did like every leadership program. I did every organization. I was like the chair of this and that and the other thing. I like won awards for like, like it was like, I was so intent on being a success. I wanted to prove um, to my parents and my family and my friends and everyone that I was like, I was successful and I was smart and I was doing good. And, but I didn't even stop and think like, do I even, what am I, what what do I want out of this? Why am I doing this? And then, you know, it runs out. You, you run out of programs to do, you run out of things to try for. It's not exciting anymore. And then you're like, oh, what do I actually want to do? Well, I don't want to be a lawyer. I don't really care actually about being the, um, you know, the the parliamentarian for the whatever club. Yeah. So I started doing improv with some of my friends and I fucking loved it. And then I started doing stand up and characters and stuff and kind of decided I was going to move to New York again. Was like, now I'll go. Because I, I lived in New York for two summers in college. I did some little internships in New York and spent a ton of time at UCB. And then... Right before we graduated, a bunch of my buddies from the improv team were like, hey, we're moving to Chicago. And I was like, why? Um, and they were like, oh, there's a really good comedy scene there. And I was like, I've never heard about it. And then they were like, well, you'll have to trust <laughs> well, us. Well, in Chillicothe, nobody's talking Yeah, about Yeah, I was, like, I was like, prove it. But these are all guys who read like comedy books and watched you know, documentaries about comedians. They're like comedy yes. uh, scholars. Students, yeah, yeah. Yes, and I was not that. So I was yeah. like, I, I'll take your word for it. I don't have anyone to live with in New York anyway. Went to Chicago. Best decision I ever made. Yeah, Chicago is a great place to go learn comedy because that's what you're doing it for. You're not doing it, you know, There, it's just, and you can, you can catch yourself. I mean, I would catch myself like, what am I doing? Like, why am I, why am I, why did I, because, you know, I went to film school and I worked in film production. And at a certain point, I had to quit film production to do shows, to be able to commit yeah. to to rehearsal schedules and things for shows because in film production, you get a job on a, you know, on a target commercial 
It's two, it's by for two weeks. I'll see you guys in two weeks because yeah. I'm working on this target commercial. So I had to make that decision. And it was like, what am I, how? And I, you know, my mom too, at the time is like, um, okay. <laughs> you know, so you're going to wait tables at lunch. So you have times at night to do your shows and they don't pay. You. And like, yeah, I, they you don't know, pay you, but you pay them to take yeah, the classes yeah, and what's yeah. kind of, and I just, and I don't know. I just kind of felt like, I just felt like, well, this is fun. I'm existing. I'm surviving. I know I'm getting better at this. I see other people get jobs. You know, I've seen like, you know, like there was a guy, a guy, uh, Ken Campbell, he was, an improv guy uh, and he hosted, I think they were turtle races at some bar in Chicago that they may still do them. Um, but he was kind of a BMOC in the Chicago uh, improv scene. And he got a job on Herman's head, which was an early Fox sitcom had to be 91, 92. And that was like for a ton of us, I think was like, all right, this, you know, here like, we go. Somebody can get a job doing this, you know, because other than that, it was just get lucky to maybe be in a Montgomery Ward commercial there locally. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's, uh, you just, there's no reason there's, you, you're just learning comedy to learn comedy. You're not waiting for agents to show up. You're just, you know, it's the, it's the best comedy scene in the country, I think. And I yeah. love, I love New York and LA. I, I love, uh, I've loved every place I've ever lived, uh, which is a, not, a th I think, you know, when a lot of people talk about uh, New York, LA, Chicago, there's at least uh, one or two that they despise. I don't feel that way. Yeah. I think every place is special, but Chicago is the best, most talented uh, comedy scene in the country. And there's, because there's a bunch of people that, yeah, I didn't know what a fucking manager was. I didn't know what an agent was. I didn't know mm -hmm. you needed a lawyer. Once you started doing TV jobs, I didn't, I didn't know any of that. I just went to Chicago because I knew I wanted to make comedy. My friends were going there and I read like, you know, three sentences about IO and was like, Oh, I see the people that have done this here. That seems like a good track record. They obviously uh, have a good thing going. So I moved there to start taking classes and it was kind of like, yeah, for the first year or two, depending on who you are, some people do longer or less, you just do a bunch of uh, free improv shows for nobody. Mm -hmm. And if you're lucky, what you get out of it is you figure out what you think is funny. Right. And then you can maybe turn that into something else. You can turn it into characters or stand up or sketch or something marketable that is an improv that you can actually use to get a job or, or, or uh, create a fan base or make a show. Um, and then you keep doing improv for fun because it keeps you sharp. But Chicago is the place you go to get good at comedy and other places are where you go to get jobs in comedy. Yeah, yeah. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at tmobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Can't you tell my love's a growing? Now, you, uh, you started to kind of come to 
I, I mean, the way that I first saw you was uh, doing character videos online. Sure. And was that a conscious decision? Like, this is something that might get me noticed? Or was it just kind of you were doing it anyway and it just seemed, you know? I, so... <laughs> Uh, so basically I was in Chicago and IO has that, um, which I, I understand that they didn't used to do it this way. So I know that IO used to do their SNL auditions very differently. It used to be a like group improv, but in the last, I don't know, however many years since I was there and certainly a little bit before it's a character showcase and, and, mm. you know, Sharna picks 15 people, um, after the end of a months long, like very arduous process. And she puts 15 people up for Lauren and the head writers when they come to town. Mm. So I had been practicing for that for like a year and doing characters on little shows and getting my set together and kind of just for fuck around sake, like I, I, your first year, the trajectory of that showcase in Chicago is that like 600 people do the first round, 50 or 60 do the second round. And then the third round is the final 15 that get in front of the actual people. And then they invite some of you to drinks. They fly some of you out, whatever. Well, I was doing it your first year. No one ever gets to the second round really. So I was just kind of fucking around and was like, I'm going to do what I think is funny. And I've been doing a bunch of shows and, the previous year, uh, my first year in Chicago during showcase, I was interning there. So I would make sure that I was interning in the box office on the nights where showcase sets were happening. And then I would sneak off and go watch like every single showcase that year to see like mm-hmm. what people do too much of what people don't do enough of whatever, like just kind of researching it. And then whatever I did the first round, got the second round. Um, this is my second year in Chicago. And I was like, Oh great. I did. Yeah. That's incredible. I can't believe I got the second round. There's no way I'm going to get the third. We're home free on this. Um, it doesn't have to be good. Uh, and then I did get the third round, um, which was insane. I was like, oh, fuck, this wasn't supposed to happen. Now I got to do this shit in front of actual people. It's a huge show. It sells out in like 10 seconds. Lauren and everybody comes. So I did the showcase. And then um, and Lauren and Colin and everybody invited me to drinks or I guess, the, you know, the producers, whoever. I went to drinks with them at their fancy hotel. And then, you know, I... Talked to them there. We chatted about life or whatever. And then they asked me to fly to New York and do the screen test. During all those talks, Steve Higgins was like, do you make internet content? And I was like, no. <laughs> and I was kind of annoyed. I was like, why are we talking about that? And, like, right. <laughs> and he was like, well, that's how everyone does it now. And I was like, well, it's not a problem for me because you're going to hire me. <laughs> and, then, and then it doesn't matter what everyone does because I yeah. have the job, you know? And I was, you know, at this point in Chicago, making zero money on comedy. I have no internet following because I'm not trying to have one. And I'm doing like free shows for nobody, you know? And so I was like, whatever, it doesn't matter. I'm going to get the job and that's going to be my thing. And then I screen test, do all the stuff, spend the time in New York, come back to Chicago, don't get it. Um, An agent who I got during that process calls me and is like, hey, you didn't get it. I cried for 10 minutes, went and did a show, didn't really think about it again. I mean, it was sad, but it was like, whatever, that's how it goes. Right. But then I was, you know, afterwards I was kind of like, I'm fucking annoyed by that. I did a really good set. <laughs> I was like, I want to be on the show. And I was like, well, Steve said that I should make videos. So I was like, I'm going to fucking make, I'm going to, I'm going to make videos and I'm going to make them. I want them to do well. And at first it was kind of like, I want SNL to see this next year when they come to town, they'll come back to Chicago. They'll see me again and I'll do the videos like Steve said. And then, you know, and so I started doing the videos and I don't know, a couple months into making these dumb little videos on Twitter, they, uh, one of them really went off. Like it got like, I don't know, 7 million views or something. Oh, wow. And I got like 70,000 followers overnight. I think I had like three or 4,000 at the time. And I got mm-hmm. a fuck ton of followers, a f- bunch of, you know, a, people started reaching out to me about TV shows and stuff. And like, we want you to, do you have an idea for this or whatever? And it was 
really bizarre. And then I followed it up with this series of videos that also got a lot of attention um, where I was, it was, I did a continued narrative thread of a bunch of videos where I was talking to a coworker about gossip and I ended every one of them on a cliffhanger. Um, Cause I had wanted to do long form content on a website like Twitter, where I felt like that was difficult, where people mm-hmm. didn't really hang around for stuff. Right. I thought that would be interesting if I could make that work. So I did that and it got some attention. And then, you know, I got managers from it. I started writing for a TV show. And then somewhere along the way, I was like, oh, I don't want to do SNL. And I really only wanted to do it then because it was a way to make money and get out of Chicago, which yeah. is, there's no other, in Chicago, it's like you either got to get SNL or blow up on the internet. And those are your options out. Like that's, yeah. that's how you get, that's, it's either that or you make the jump to New York or LA and you try to do industry showcases or something, but it's, it feels like those are the only ways. And so I started making videos kind of out of, um, not spite, but just like, I need to kill time before SNL comes to town again. Yeah. And that's kind of how it went. And I just rambled so much. Did you love that ramble? Oh, no, (laughs) no, it was, it was, well, first of all, it was very informative. And, and for me, it was funny because you said, you know, the way that, that, Improv Olympic does SNL tryouts now, which is just hilarious to me because, like, I didn't even I didn't know that there was a like an institutional seasonal <laughs> thing because that did not happen when I was there. really was like, okay. Yeah, no, there was like there was one night there was a there was a show uh, that uh, Joey Soloway and her and their sister Faith uh, mm. did the real live Brady Bunch. And that was a big hit for the Annoyance Theater there. Mm-hmm. And then they did a um, a show that was all women called uh, the Miss Vagina Pageant, and it was a, <laughs> it was a you know it was like a, a beauty pageant thing. Yeah, and and there was like some we had a like they were doing a show, and I was at the theater that night, and it was uh, they're doing a, it may have even been at the end of a Brady Bunch, and they did a special like ver you know like a special ch- edition of the of Miss Vagina pageant but Lorne Michaels it was somebody from SNL was coming and then they were setting up seats and then Lorne Michaels and Quincy Jones stroll in like <laughs> to the annoyance theater you know which was like a converted like it had been a drag club you know yeah. it was like it was a dump and it stunk and it was like plastic folding chairs and Lauren Michaels and Quincy Jones came in and that was the, that was it. That was like the only sort of SNL kind of thing that even happened then, you know, it's, it's all very formal now. It's this thing where like they, they sell out the show, they reserve a row for SNL, SNL, SNL people roll in um, the head writers and Steven Warren and 30 seconds before the show starts 30 seconds before they stroll in, they sit down as soon as they sit down, the show starts. Yeah. And then afterwards, the next day, you either get a call that you're going to drinks or you don't. I think like six people on the lineup got invited to drinks. And then you go have drinks and there's no, there's no like agenda. It's like, like I, I literally, when I was talking to Lauren, I spent probably five minutes talking about the chandeliers. <laughs> I spent probably five minutes talking about the chandeliers in the hotel because it was the Ritz downtown and I'd never been in a place with that many chandeliers. Like it was honestly overkill. Yeah. And I was like pointing out my favorite ones and asking him about his favorite ones. And then the, the, it's like speed dating. So the girl comes by and says, Hey, you guys need to move on to the next group. And Lauren, <laughs> I had only talked about chandeliers. So Lauren goes mm-hmm, five more minutes with this guy. And so then we had to actually talk about something that wasn't the chandeliers. Right. Right. It's this very like insane process. And then 
arbitrarily you get invited or not invited to screen tests. And then some people fly again, some don't, some stay for multiple, you know, it's, it, it, it has become something that is very, I think, systematic for them, but on the talent yeah. side of it, you're like, I don't know what the fuck is happening. Do I have a job yep. or not? You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know how else you do it. I mean, there's no sort of like fair way no. when you got a TV show and you know, you're going to maybe, you know, if you're going to pick any people, you're going to pick maybe two and there's 60 wanting it. It's going to be brutal. You know, it's going to be ugly at some point. And you have all these different slots to fill and you don't know who's staying and leaving. And, and, you know, it, I, I think it's a, it's a very difficult job. I, um, my friends who work on the show are some of the funniest people in the fucking world and I love them and they make great stuff on there. And I think it's not a, it's not a job that I, uh, want or need, uh, at this point in my life, but I, I'm, I, I have no ill will towards it. It was a great process and it helped me get um, my managers and my agents. And yeah. it, I, I wouldn't have done started doing videos unless I had had that conversation with Steve Higgins. So I'm like, it was only positive for me. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, now, uh, what did trigger the move to LA? Was there any one particular thing or was it just kind of like when you saw that all the attention you're getting and, the, you know, and then, you know, because you do, you get... It does matter. It's, you know, it's, there's things, you know, like I know, like for selling a book, like if you have, if you have 200,000 people that follow you on something, you could probably sell a book just because you have 200,000 people, you know, you're, the idea yeah. doesn't matter. It's all just about, you know, how you can get your shit in front of people. And if you have a built-in audience, people are like, oh yeah, hey, why, uh, you know. Come get, oh. let us, let us use you for something. Yeah. It matters exponentially. It's really insane. I mean, you fight against it. I think it, because you want to be like, I think I had ideas about, I, I still don't want to do, I mean, I haven't done a video in months. I don't love doing internet videos. I do them when I think I have a fun idea that's easy to put out, but you fight against it. I think cause you're like, Oh, I want to do, I don't, that's not what I want to do. I only want to do what I want to do. But then, yeah, I was doing the same material in August of 2019. Uh, to, like I said, five people who didn't pay for the show, two of them are also on the show at midnight in a, an attic in Chicago. The same material I was doing then is what I was doing six months later when I had a hundred thousand Twitter followers, but now my shows are selling out. And yeah. it's like, yeah, it's just the internet stuff matters. But I guess the, the move to LA, when I moved to Chicago, I told myself five years, go to Chicago for five years, do improv, do whatever you want, have fun. And if you don't have a reason to move to New York or LA, um, to do comedy on, uh, for money or for some something else, um, you should quit and go to grad school or go do something else. You should go do another thing that you're good at because there are other things you're good at and you don't need to do comedy. Mm. Um, and it's not to say that you shouldn't do it for longer than five years or anything. I just felt like for me, I was going to do five years and that was, was going to be it. So I was in Chicago for three years and... Um, before the pandemic hit, I quit my day job. I was having meetings about writing for TV shows. Um, everything was on LA time, but I was in Chicago. So it was, uh, scheduling meetings and things was kind of annoying. Um, not impossible, but annoying. And I didn't really think the pandemic would last for that much longer. So I was like, you know, I'm just going to go because I had already made up my mind to go anyway. So I moved and I, I love LA. I mean, uh -huh. I miss Chicago, but I love LA as a city. And I, I kind of really got to know, like if I had moved here during normal times, I would have lived out of a suitcase for six months and been doing shows every night and running around. 
Yeah. But, you know, I hung pictures on my wall. I drove around. I got to know the city a little better. And it was like, it's had good sides, but it was definitely a weird choice. I think, yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, to move yeah. during the pandemic. Well, is there, is there anything that's like surprised you the most about from kind of, you know, toiling in obscurity to now kind of being known, you know, and being asked on, uh, you know, middle of the road podcasts like this one, you know, getting that change <laughs> in your life. Is there, yeah, yeah, yeah. The question, the question is, how has your life changed from being on my podcast? <laughs> yes, yes. No, but you know what I, no, I mean, like what's, like, has anything really changed? Is there any surprises from, you know, from 2,000 followers to 100,000 followers? I don't. I mean, yeah, there, there are things that are different. I hate thinking about it really genuinely. I mean, I love the attention. I want attention constantly. It's obviously why I do uh, comedy. I obviously. Obviously, come on now. <laughs> but I hate thinking about myself as like, I don't know, someone who um, has, I, I, I don't know, I don't even know how to put, in, put words to it. But I think, um, yeah, there are, there are a lot of little realizations along the way. People are incredibly mean, but also incredibly kind. People think they know you and feel like your best friend. They never had a conversation with them in your life. Mm -hmm. um, people want you to die because you have opinions on the internet that they don't agree with. Half of which are genuinely jokes. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it also, um, a lot of body image stuff. Like I, I really, uh, didn't think about my body that much beforehand. I always kind of liked what I looked like. I like who I am. I think I'm uh, attractive and, and funny and interesting. And I, I never really thought about it, but then millions of people or even hundreds of thousands of people, um, look at you and, um, say things to you about the way you look and, you know, you're doing constant self tapes and you're constantly looking at yourself and thinking about your look and thinking about what you have to offer to an industry that is, um, incredibly homogenous. Um, and, and it just is, it's a very weird thing to be so conscious of, um, your body and other people's perceptions of you. So constantly, mm -hmm. um, and, and it fuckers are mean. They're mean. And they're, they are fucking mean. They're hardly ever mean in the fun way either. Cause I will yeah. say, I get some replies that are like, they're mean as fuck, but they're funny. And that's rare. Yeah. They're usually just brutal. Like they're yeah. usually just like, like, I, I don't know why it's so much more brutal to be, like if there's a joke wrapped up in it, like you're so fat, you look like X or it seems like you're going to, that I can at least respect because there was some structure attempts. But when people just DM me and are like, you're the fattest person I've ever seen, you should die. <laughs> like, the straightforwardness of that, I'm like, you meant it. You really yeah, meant yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just, yeah, shit like it's having to constantly think about, I think even more than image, I think constantly thinking about other people's perceptions of you, casting yeah. directors, agents, managers, yep. fans, other comics. Um, is this going to last? Am I going to have another job after this one? All of that stuff is very new. I used to just make comedy with my friends for fun. And I am still doing that to an extent, but it's, yeah, it's just, it's, it's different problems. Yeah. It's uh, it is weird. You get used to it. Uh, you know, I mean, when I started after I left the Conan show and, you know, was doing different shows and, um, you know, my mom would say, so when th this thing you're doing, how long does that last? Oh, a couple of months. And then what? I don't know. Yeah. And that, you know, that Friday wiring, it's just like, how can you do that? And, and honestly, after having done worked for 10 years straight on the, on the TBS show, which, you know, in some ways 
Like, it was fantastic. But in some ways, it's kind of limiting. You know, I mean, I am kind of off on Conan Island. Uh, you know, there's like, I'll see, you know, mediocre comedies where I virtually know everyone in the fucking thing. And I'm like, what, there was no security guard role for me? <laughs> you know, like, I couldn't have, I couldn't have done a day or two on this fucker. Right. Um, and, but, you know, I, I had, I mean, the beautiful things about it is I worked on a, a, a show that means something to people. I worked with people that I love and I was home at night for dinner for 10 years while my kids were, you know, from the ages of they were five and 10 and now they're 15 and 20. And, and that was, that's really all valuable, valuable stuff. But now the TBS show winds down. Don't no, have no idea what's going to happen with HBO Max. So I'm back to, I'm freelance again. And it's fucking scary. Like I'm really kind of, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, everybody tells me, oh, you don't have to worry about that. And it's like, yeah, you're, I'm the only person that can't go. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have yeah. to worry about that. And it's like you say about your looks. I'm the same way. I don't think about, uh, you know, I mean, I'd like to drop a few pounds. I'd like to be younger. I'd like all kinds of, you know, I'd like all kinds of different things. But in my life, I'm happy. I'm fine. I, you know, I I'm feel like I'm a, you know, a lovable human being. Um, but then there's just that level of like, no, I do have to think about how yeah. I look. I do because it's a reality. And I can be a swashbuckling and I don't give a fuck about all of this as much as I want or convince myself that that's what I'm doing. But no, you got to, you know, yeah, you can't just, you know, they're going to look at you. They're going to judge you by how, by how you look. They're going to, you know, judge your voice by how you, you know, and also acting, you gotta, you gotta be good. You gotta, you gotta, (laughs) you gotta, you gotta gotta critique, you know, so you do have to care. You do have to think about it. Although there is a lot of, a lot of not, a lot of freeing yourself from caring about a lot of stuff. That's like, that's where the, like, that's a skill you learn as time goes on of like what you should care about and what you shouldn't care about. And when you should just effortlessly say, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and, and not, and not sweat the, the fallout supposedly from saying no about something. Yeah. Um, I, I think the, um, I, the one thing I started doing when I got to Chicago, because I was so like constantly thinking about uh, making it, which is something I don't believe in anymore. But at the time I was like, I want to make it. And um, I started writing down, I had this notebook, of course, where I wrote all my bits and I started writing down, like anytime I got too stressed out about that or other things similar to that, I started writing down little catchphrases, like little, like uh, inspirational, like helpful, like, and I've had, I've had them, they change every couple months or whatever, whatever I need at the time. But my thing lately that I've been writing down over and over again when I feel stressed out is um, you're young and you have enough. Yeah. And I think that's really having enough and not constantly wanting more is a thing that even in a short time in LA, having met almost exclusively cool, nice people that I really like and respect. It's just a, there's a, there's a desire for more of everything constantly that I do relate to, but don't want to um, Mm -hmm. invest in Yeah, because it feels so adopt. Yeah, I don't want to adopt it. I don't yeah, want to. Yeah. I don't want to feed it. It can. It can be there. It can be okay that I want more and that I want to do a lot of things still. But I'm young. I do have enough. Um, you don't. You don't really need the world. And it's. I think it's particularly in LA more than Chicago, certainly, and even I would say more than New York. There is kind of um, a something in the air of like I need more. 
Yeah. And I think it's interesting. That's well, and that also, I, I, I one of the things that I, quotes I remember somebody saying, uh, the screenwriter Patty Chayefsky said once that the desire for fame uh, is perfect, is a perfectly fine motivator when you're young. Like, go for it. If that's what you, if that's what your fire, you know, what puts the fire in your engine, go for it. But at a certain point, you got to turn it off because it will make you mentally ill. I mean, he didn't say that. I'm saying that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's like, I do think like, yeah, you come out here and it is like, there's all this, you, you know, there's, it's like you're presented with a ladder and you get on one rung and then you look at other ladders. You're like, holy shit, 20 rungs above me. You're literally bathing in gold, you know, like, how can I not want that? And you get knocked off the ladder and you get another ladder and you start again and it's sort of rung by rung. Um, But yeah, but ultimately you're right. It's about if you have enough, if you're making a living, you know, that that was another very Midwestern concern of mine when I came out here was just look at all these people making a living. They're all, you know, like I don't need to be. I don't need to be Bill Murray, but, you know, I could certainly be like one of those guys where you're like, oh, yeah, that guy. I've seen that guy in a hundred things. You know, that character actor, that's great, you know, or just doing fucking cartoon voices. Like I know people who make a really good living just doing cartoon voices. And what a life. Like, wow, what a life. I can't believe the number of people that I have never heard of that do very well. Yeah. As writers or producers or yeah, voiceover <laughs> actors or whatever. Actors and who that, never get anything on screen. Who yeah. work for years with deals, writing things that never get made. It's like, you know, I mean, that's that's a that's not a particularly fulfilling way to exist, but it's there. Right. $300,000 for a script that they're not going to make. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. That's all right. People do that. <laughs> yeah. It's, there's worse. There's much worse things to do with your time when you're, you know, earning a living. Um, well now, now, uh, do you have any, I mean, COVID is, it's, you came out here at a weird time. Like, and like you said, you, you have had a weird introduction to LA successful, you know, you know, burgeoning success in comedy. Um, is there something like, what are you looking forward to? What is like, what is kind of like, if things really work out? in the next couple of years, how you want them to, what do you think, what does that look like? I, um, I want to do shows when I want to, with who I want to, I want to go. Oh, to well, fucking la dee da. La dee da. Jesus Christ. Okay. Yes. No, fucking, okay. You want to, you want to hang out with your friends. Okay. <laughs> no, you I want to do good work mansion. with people you love. Oh. I want to. I want to cook in a stove made of gold. Okay. <laughs> I, want, I want diamonds on my light switches. Yes. Yes. Um, no, I want to do that. Is in the in the live space the thing I'm most interested in? I don't need to do. I don't need a special. I don't need to do stadiums or anything. I just want to do shows with people I like in that space. And the thing I really want to do is uh, acting in TV and movies and directing. I just shot a pilot uh, for TBS that I we're waiting to hear back now if it's going to go or not. Really love everybody who's uh, involved with it. So I'm like, that would be kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, to even if we only got to do a season, I think it'd be really cool. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, I want to, I want to act. I want to make stuff. I am really right now trying to think about like directing. Like I'm like, okay, I've, I have been on sets, but I, I have some friends who are directing really cool shit. And I want to like, when things are a little more normal and COVID's not so 
fucking derailing for everything. I want to just like go shadow people and, and learn more about directing and stuff. But I think in the next, like, I'm thinking mostly in, in months at a time. And I think in the next year or so, if uh, I'm, I'm selling an animated show that we're almost uh, to the end of the deal on the pilot, we're waiting to hear back on. And I'm writing a movie about a gay country music star. Wow. And I think if those three things, um, and well, I have another, there's another show I'm working on. If, if my, if the things I have in development um, would just progress even slowly, I would feel really excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. I and if they all stuff. happen at once, you'll uh, want to kill yourself. Yeah. It, <laughs> and if they all happen at once, I'll, I'll probably get sued by somebody. Cause I don't really know <laughs> how you really, can do that. Yeah. I don't really know how that works, but I, yeah. That's yeah. the problem with putting a lots of irons in the fire. It's like, Oh no, if they all heat up at once, what the fuck is going to happen? Oh yeah. But I mean, that's, you know, you figure it out every, every, it's all just w- making one decision after the other, just as they come and don't get too worried about, you know? Yeah. I can I kind of do whatever I want and just trust that my lawyers have gotten under control. Like I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I can <laughs> my do that. Lawyers, my lawyers. He's already saying my uh, lawyers that literally I was sh- listen, Andy, I was shocked to learn that if someone asks you to do a TV show, and you're already doing another one. You're not allowed to just say yeah. yes. Yeah. I was yeah. like, I was like, what? They're like, they're like, oh yeah, your lawyers have to like negotiate. I'm like, to say I can do, I'm not even at work right now. They're like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That is fucking insane to me. Yeah, I was like, yeah. I can't believe this. No, they, they, you know, they own you. If you, yeah. if, you know, <laughs> yeah, you say yeah. yes to a TV show, they own you. They own your TV ness for a while there. You know, I was shocked. I was like, they can't do that to me. And they were yeah. like, yeah, they can. And I was like, oh, I guess they can. I mean, yeah, I literally, I, I literally know nothing. And I just walk around going, oh, I can do that. And then someone goes, no, you can't. And I go, what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? Oops. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, now, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to, uh, the, the last thought I had on that was I, my, the whole time I was in Chicago, pretty much, I didn't see my family a ton. And then, uh, because going home just took so much time away from work and shows. So I like went mm-hmm. home for the holidays or whatever, but I really, uh, want COVID obviously to slow down and I want to just go see my family more. I like, I like being in, I like being in Missouri and I like seeing my family. So I'm hopeful that, um, I'll get to do that because that also is a really nice, like privilege of having free time is such a privilege. I, I mm-hmm. free, just having time where you have the money and literal like open calendar to go and see somebody or something you like is such a massive privilege that I just don't think people who have it really think about that often. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, um, what have you, what have you learned both good and bad from this, you know, from this, you know, relatively, it's a, you know, we're talking about a relatively short period of time from, you know, from, from your life changing. Um, what, what are the things that you've learned so far? Do you think that you could tell someone else who's like, you know, interested in a similar path? Um, yeah, I just, I, I feel like in terms of the work stuff, like comedy stuff, it's, it's like all luck. You have to be prepared when luck comes, but it's like good. Good luck. I hope luck finds you. Um, that is that is what you're waiting on is someone to come out of nowhere and sort of say, maybe. And it feels insane to be waiting for that. It happens quicker for some people than others. Um, but I think it's all luck. And I think on the life front, the more important thing, um, it's just all about good people. I've been it's just hanging out with good people, spending time with good people who make you feel good, uh, feels so basic and like 
cross stitch on a pillow type shit, but it's like, I don't under that, that the thing I was talking about earlier of loving every place I've ever lived. I've loved every place I've ever lived. Cause I've always hung out with cool, good people that make me feel good. And I think it's hard to have a bad time when you're hanging out with like nice, interesting, cool people who are nice to you and don't treat you badly. <laughs> I think like, <laughs> you know, that's, that's it. That's the whole thing. That's the whole point of everything is hanging out with good people. Um, and hopefully you get to do it at work too, but at least in your life. Yeah. Yeah. I, and it's, it's been very reinforced to me. Um, definitely, especially because of COVID and because of, um, just things changing and moving to a new place in the middle of a pandemic and, um, you know, not seeing my family for, I didn't see my, I saw my family Thanksgiving before the pandemic and then not at all until I got vaccinated in like March of, um, 2021. So it's like a year and a half, a long time of not seeing anybody in my family. Um, yeah. So I think the big thing on my mind lately has just been good times with good people. That's the whole point. Yeah. Well, uh, good luck to you. And 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 thanks for for coming on here and uh, and I will uh, keep watching what you're doing because I think you're uh, pretty fucking funny. Oh, thanks, yeah. Andy. I, you're welcome. I thought this was mostly fun, and I think if I could give you one note, it would be all the homophobic slurs that you were putting in the chat during the podcast recording. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't do that next time if you have a gay guest. I just thought that was overkill. No, I meant I'm a fan of Nelly, the the <laughs> rapper. <laughs> yeah, I just I don't know the the all the slurs you were typing in the chat. I thought were totally random. I just was leaning on the keyboard. It's so weird it came out that way. Yeah, they came uh, out super clear sentences that people would really not like to see. But thank well, you for having you, me. You, you got that over me. <laughs> all thanks right. for having me. This was fun. Sure, thank you. And uh and thanks all of you out there uh for listening and we'll be back next week. With three more questions of some unsuspecting questionee. Oh, that was a terrible sign off. Got a big, big love for you. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco and Earwolf production. It is produced by Lane Gerbig, engineered by Marina Pice, and talent produced by Galitza Hayek. The associate producer is Jen Samples, supervising producer Aaron Blair, and executive producers Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson and Cody Fisher at Earwolf. Make sure to rate and review the three questions with Andy Richter on Apple Podcasts. Can't you tell my love's a growing? This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.